Welcome to Onward, the show where we explore emerging social innovations and chat with social innovators. I'm your host, Daniel Weinsweg. I used to love watching those near-future action movies. You know, The Terminators, Enemy of the State, Minority Report. Hell, even RoboCop. The narratives of these films are all driven by this government ability, some big brother type organization that is leveraging incredible technologies to achieve their nefarious means. Then, a few years later, I got the chance to work up close and personal with government, and oh, was I deeply disappointed. The technologies that our government actually relies upon look far more like technology from the turn of the century and far less like anything us 21st century beings are accustomed to using daily. My Amazon app is a hundred times more efficient and effective than any procurement process at any county in the United States. My ability to upvote ideas on Reddit is far more efficient, reliable, and easy to access than any electoral election held in the history of the United States. Our society grows more complex. Our government remains largely stationary. As a society, we're making quantum leaps. Our commerce, transportation, communication, and education is evolving, yet our government structures remain fairly unchanged. Minor policy tweaks here and there, working on the margins. As we've been listening to political debates and are getting prepared for the next round in the election years to come, it is always, to me, a sad reminder as we hear whatever panel of candidates posture about how they're going to hold on to some document written over 200 years ago harder than the other candidates. As Yuval Harari highlighted in his recent book, the most important conversation that nation-states need to be having go largely ignored. How will government res- respond to climate change, biomedical advancements, artificial intelligence? These are the industries that are likely to drive the global economy in the next century, yet we rarely hear our leaders discuss these issues, their implications, with any level of seriousness. While us humans have a fairly small frame of reference, the arc of humankind is quite vast. And you'd think given the myriad of innovations in the last two centuries, this would necessitate some overhaul of our basic governance structures. In the 20th century alone, our world experienced the rise and fall of three defining narratives. All governance systems, authoritarianism, communism, and liberal democracy. Throughout the history of the last hundred plus years, slowly but surely, authoritarianism was proven ineffective, then communism, which left liberal democracy as the last viable governance option standing. But look around. It appears we're at the outward limits of liberal democracy's ability to govern the scope 
breadth, depth, diversity, and complexity of the world in which we exist. Like all past governance structures, many of our world's greatest cities have burnt to the ground. Think about it. Tokyo, London, New York, Paris, Rome, San Francisco, and then they were rebuilt. This is the story symbolized by the Phoenix Rising, and it's top of mind for me during these times. The tension that exists at the governance level seems to be coming to a breaking point, and maybe that's a good thing. Maybe the system needs to break down, burn down, before it can be rebuilt into a better fashion. If this is the case, then I need to admit we do have some dark days ahead. Luckily, there are many people who are currently working to ensure this is not the case, that our transition to the next form of governance is smooth, and that the next form of governance is more humane, effective, responsive, and nimble. Today, that's what we will be discussing. I've invited Paula Santana onto the show. She is inspirational, she is aspirational, and she has some audacious projects that she has worked on and is leaning into. I originally scheduled this conversation to be 45 minutes, but Paula and I got into it. Her vision and how she plans to operationalize her mission is inspiring, is complex, and after over an hour and a half of discussion, I felt like we had just touched the tip of the iceberg. I could easily spend the next 45 minutes highlighting and introducing Paula, but instead, I'd rather have you feel her words and be impacted by her stories. Without further ado, this is Paula and I's conversation as we explore Governance 3.0. doing some big things so we're gonna start big and then we'll drill our way down as we go along perfect so just to kick things off what's the problem that you're working to solve well the problem uh, we're working to solve now is um, global governance but today's global governance so the big moonshot um, is to rethink uh, politics and to rethink the way we run the world and we run the public thing. And I've been thinking about this for a while. Um, the system we live in today was designed, like the best that we think is today, we have today. Was we're designed, talking liberal democracy. We're talking liberal democracy. And that was designed um, over 2000 years ago by a group of people for their context. And we've been, okay iterating on it and putting good patches and bad patches on it and what we have today it's something that was designed not for this time and for this society and as opposed to working on other patches or going further into you know representative democracy liquid democracy ex democracy i'm more interested in learning what is what goes after democracy questions big questions do we vote do we vote every four five years do we vote for people or we vote for projects do we select budgets and attach budgets to the things we we are interested do we get to have a say of what someone two thousand kilometers away on how that person lives 
and how that person has access to public services. So I want to do a step back and rethink all of that. And that's the moonshot. The, the thing with moonshots is that moonshots are big ideas and they take time. And I don't think that the problems that governments need to solve today can wait. Like you and I have the right. privilege to sit down and think about things and discuss things. But um, as we talk about these things, people um, is governments are impacting the way people even live or not live um, if, if they are um, doing their work or not. So what we're doing today about that moonshot is basically trying to make governments more efficient today. So working with the governments that we have today, not the governments we would want to have, but the ones we have today. And I would say that is the MVP. So the MVP of that big moonshot, the minimum viable product is how can we create tools that allow governments to self-transform into high-performing entities. So um, that's what Social Glass is about. Social Glass is a software ecosystem that um, enables governments to do that, to transform into very efficient uh, entities uh, using AI and using uh, other type of technologies to basically go from from zero to one, digitize, then automate, then streamline, and then capture a good practice and repeat and scale that practice all over government within an agency, between agency, and between countries. Moonshot is a word that was derived from Y Combinator. Y Combinator is one of the most impactful accelerators out of Silicon Valley. They've helped launch small companies like Airbnb, Dropbox, Reddit, Twitch, Gusto, LendUp, Checker, Zenefits, Zapier, WePay, and many more. Y Combinator and their startups and leaders that they have helped accelerate have really helped crystallize the term moonshot throughout Silicon Valley and the world of technology. At its core, a moonshot is an ambitious, exploratory, and groundbreaking project undertaken without any expectation of near-term profitability. Think Uber. At its core, a moonshot is a project or a proposal that addresses a huge problem, proposes a radical solution, and uses breakthrough technology. Kind of like that time in 1969 when Apollo 11 went to the moon? What I love in your description is you talk about the moonshot while also honoring the incremental nature of government. Yes, and that was one of the biggest insights uh, when working at Modernet, my first startup, and then seeing the contrast between having these amazing ideas but then at the same time, seeing how people that were going after the low hanging fruits would at least have their companies funded and going. And um, in Matternet, um, it took us a while to get funded. Um, and it was a great thing because, you know, it created a sense of uh, resiliency in the team that still today, Matternet is one of the pioneering drone delivery companies with uh, worked with authorities to create drone regulation. We are the first drone delivery platform in the world that was granted a permit to fly over people in a city carrying stuff and charge for it. Like not a pilot, like for to real do this. You know, Amazon cannot 
claim that. Google cannot claim that. And we are actually doing it. In what city is this? Uh, Zurich. Let me explain a little bit more about the significance of Matternet. So this idea was born because Paula, growing up in the Dominican Republic, is familiar with under-resourced environments. So what happens with Matternet is let's say you're in a remote part of Bolivia and it's a really rainy season, the road to your village gets washed out. A lot of people in your village are now going to die and become ill from fairly basic ailments that could be solved if the doctor could just deliver those prescription pills, that penicillin to your village, but they can't because there's no longer the infrastructure there to support that transfer of medication. Delivering things via drones doesn't need infrastructure. So these drones currently are able to carry about one kilogram of goods, so it's perfect for medication. And while they're starting out in Zurich, the real focus is to develop this network in communities and countries around the world with compromised infrastructure and that are subject to weather patterns that just decimate the ability to get from point A to point B. You can find out more about Matternet at mttr.net. So, you know, all these things happen, all these things came together. <clears throat> it took a while, but we didn't, on purpose, we didn't tap on low-hanging fruits. We didn't, we, we were saying, if we start working on things that we can do today with drones, we don't focus on building the drone that will do the delivery. Yeah. And that was a decision. In my second startup, I, I don't want to make that decision. I want to work on things that are low-hanging fruits, that are part of the bigger vision. But I want to make sure that I can make money on day one. Because if I cannot make money on day one, I'm relying on investors or on other people to dictate how aggressive I can be on implementing the vision. And I don't want that. Especially today where, you know, this company is a software company and software goes very fast. So I think with this company specifically, I have the ability to keep the moonshot as the North Star. But a commitment to say, if I'm really committed to that moonshot, I need to find a sustainable way right. to year by year go up towards that moonshot making money. And I think that's one of the biggest um, challenges entrepreneurs that are working solving some of the world's biggest challenges they have is like this disconnect that if you if you are a for-profit you need to put a little bit to the side the purpose or you you cannot do good and do well at the same time right. or that you need to put one of them a little bit under and i'm like no i'm gonna work towards the governments we should have tomorrow yeah i want to figure that out i want to know how those governments make better decisions for everyone, not just for the elites, not just for the ones that are governing. But at the same time, I need to make sure that the governments that we have today work and that these governments work today in the best way they can work today. So what can I give them today? Even though those governments might not exist in 10 years when my moonshot takes over. You yeah. see what I'm saying? Uh -huh. So it's an interesting contradiction and there is a disconnect there, but I'm, I, I know that the dots will connect once um, what I'm working on now starts giving us data and showing us how governments are really operating. Like if I ask you today, 
how is the US government operating? You, number one, you are swimming in data. Like yeah. you don't even know what that, number one, you don't even know who to listen, where to go and find that information. And if the data points that are being produced by every agency, were they biased or were they, or is that all there is? But it's limited, like someone constrained the information. Mm -hmm. So you cannot tell me like, you know, we had this budget, we used this budget in this way, contrary to how we used it last year, this has impacted this amount of people not having access to healthcare. If you cannot make, if with all the information we have today, you cannot make that, you know, if you cannot construct a sentence like that, yeah. and probably the Ministry of Health can do it neither, Probably the president of a country can do it neither. Yeah. How are we going to run our countries if right. we cannot deal with complexity and make it simple enough so we can execute anything? So that's what we're trying to do by putting these products out, being able to help them um, be more efficient. But at the same time, we are getting all this data to understand how governments are operating. So then we can understand the patterns, understand the cycles, understand what's not working and then tell them this is what's not working so can you self-correct it and i'm very uh i emphasize self-correct i'm not like criticizing i'm not here you know i'm not here to criticize we're not politicians so mm -hmm. we don't talk about things we don't write legislation we don't go to congress to wait that something a law gets passed for four years right. and we're not activists we're not protesting what government is or is not doing. We build things. We build tools that create um, frameworks for government <clears throat> to operate and that make uh, uh, public services that should be universally accessible, really universally accessible. So we are shortcutting all the ways we've done politics mm -hmm. before. And when you say self-correcting, I love the vision. And as someone who loves history, I'm, I'm trying to hark back to a, a government that has self-corrected into its a better, a better self. I think um, you know, democracy is one of the better systems we have. And the competing stories that have helped entrench liberal democracy have failed along the way, whether they be uh, communism or fascism. But right now, there's not a competing story. Yeah. So I, I appreciate your, your vision of a self-correcting democracy to get us to the next point. And there's also a, a bit of skepticism that comes up within. Absolutely. Like, I am a skeptical myself in the sense of... Here in Silicon Valley, I've been granted something that many people don't are not aware that they can do and is to think and to create. To think, you need to do a step back. Mm -hmm. Because if I tell you, for example, what is a computer? Describe me a computer. The first thing you're gonna do is Google it or find somewhere a definition of computer. And then you're gonna come up with your own wording of that. And now you learn a concept, but you didn't think about the concept. Right. That concept right. was not created by you. And the big question is, who is thinking about the new concepts? And who is creating the new concepts and the new words and the new definitions? Or are we going to continue defining 
the future with legacy words and legacy understanding of the world. So when you are here in Silicon Valley, if you take the good part of Silicon Valley, you can take a step back and think. And this is why being a skeptical right now works for me because I'm, I'm, I'm thinking if I read, so I'm a lawyer and I'm a public policy expert by, um, by education. And I've worked in government in the Dominican Republic. I helped create the first constitutional court in my country back in 2012. I work at the national elections court. So I understand how democracies form from the simple wish of a candidate to how the formulas are made in countries so someone can win by a vote or by changing a district to actually running that office. Like I've seen it all. Yeah. Or let's say I understand a little bit of it. And I've seen a lot and I've understand some of it. Um, and I am not, I have not got the answers I wanted. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking if I read every book that is out there in politics or about how the world works or about democracy, I'm gonna see what other people think. And because I'm an empathetic listener and reader, I'm gonna start bending towards what I agree with. And at some point I'm gonna say, okay, I've, I, I think I have a new thing, but that new thing is not new. It's a mix of what many people right. said that I considered right or that resonated with me based on my upbringing, who I am, how I was raised, and many other things. So you see how all that bias comes into the thinking. And of course, there's no thinking that is pure, pure, pure. But if I really want to make the purest exercise I can, what I should do is to do that step back and think what I think about the future of politics before I read what's out there. And then I read, I think about that, and then once I understand what I think about it without listening to anybody else, without being more biased, then I can start reading and talking to people about what they consider is the future of politics or how would they define these things, how we articulate governments and whatnot. And then I can, you know, start refining this big idea. But if I don't take an approach of everything we have today doesn't really work in the way it could work. If I'm not that skeptical um, that what we have produced so far is not good enough and that I don't want to be constrained by any, any legacy system to create the new thing, even little features like, again, voting and paying taxes yeah. and, and whatnot. If I'm not as skeptical about all of that and if I don't consider that I have a blank canvas in front of me, I don't think I'm going to produce a new thing. And that's what I'm interested in. I'm not interested in uh arguing with people that have gone through that process but for people that have not gone through that process and is just repeating legacy systems i think we haven't really done the homework mm -hmm. and that's what i'm interested in doing so skepticism right now really works because it, it gives us the option to the opportunity to really rethink the way we're running the world um and how are we going to take it from zero to one i think we are at the end of a cycle in terms of governance and politics and I don't think talking louder or talking more or having better arguments or being more articulate or mm -hmm. being more blue or red or black and white is going to give us the answers we need.
for the level of intelligence and for the for the quality of human beings we have on earth right now yeah <clears throat> so where do we start we talk about government, we've got state government, we've got local government, we've got federal government, then we've got these international governing bodies. Where does one begin? All of those are constructs. That's a construct. Uh, if you go to, there's something I call, I don't even know if that concept exists, um, natural politics is like, natural politics would be, how do things self-organize? How does nature self-organize? And then you observe that and you try to emulate it at some point. And we're talking about the moonshine here, right? Yeah, we're not yeah. even talking yeah. about what... Uh, I'm talking to you about the big thing, um, the big thing out there. Um, and I think that naturally people um, are very close and they care about the things they have close to each other and about the things that impact their dailiness, but they don't necessarily, it's not that they don't care, it's just that they don't have an impact or an actionable thing to do on things that are not in their, in their near proximity or in their day to day. So I think that by definition, um, something that makes sense is to start with local governments and not to start with local governments hoping that we get federal. No, it's to start with local governments because people understand better what they can see that is their reality and i think that if we are able to um improve those um the politics the small politics mm-hmm. um, and people don't see the need to have big politics running into their how they run their little things i think that's going to be a game changer um people will be uh, more responsible and they will know that what they do or they don't do in their little ecosystem has an impact and as soon as they start seeing the immediate impact on their small communities but they don't have to be overburdened with big big decisions that are outside of their control the more they focus on if i do or don't do this little thing this has an impact on this 100 people community that i live in then people will be number people will stop delegating their power People will start taking action on their power and on what they need or don't need to do. And it will be more organic and less political mm-hmm. than what we have today. Um, less influenced by all these bureaucracies that exist because we create systems that are too large to manage. Right. So I think that local and smaller versus global and, you know, one takes all. Right. And honestly, I've been entertaining the thought of it's not majority over minority, is we're all a bunch of minorities. And and that's something that is it's been on my mind. Like if we see all of us as minorities, um, we can have more face-to-face conversations yeah. versus considering 51% is the majority and 49 is the minority. Like probably numbers in the way we are uh, grouping them are not the right um, criteria yeah. for choosing what's best for the people. I, I think you're, you're really onto something there. The, the power and the uniqueness of the individual is so unhonored today, be it in our 
governmental systems or how we play politics doing this race baiting or pandering to parties or how they determine their future and i think that this is this is something that entrepreneurship has given back to me so i i'm 32 and i was born in the dominican republic born and raised and i never thought like during my 25 years of formal education in a good school in the Dominican Republic and then winning a Fulbright scholarship and coming here to do my master's in law in Washington, D.C. I never considered that I could create something. So I would consider, yeah, I can draft law. I can draft a piece of legislation, but I didn't consider that like a creative thing. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I thought like, you know, these glasses, this shape, this chair is this color and someone, the someones, the ones that are up there creating things and I'm here consuming things, including legislation. Yeah. And that's the way the world is. And then you're here and you're like, oh, I can, number one, going back to my first point, I can think. And if I think and I create something that can exist in the world and that something might be a book that then a little Paola can be reading. But as opposed to that little Paola be reading the book and learning the book, can she read the book and know that the person who wrote that is a person and that your task is not to memorize the book, but if the book mentions that there's an outstanding thing, do you know that you have the power to go and think about that outstanding thing and bring a solution to that problem? Like, can you open up your eyes to know that everything that hasn't been sorted, you can go out and Mm. sort it out. And when you get that empowerment and you know that one, you can think, number two, you can create, you're thinking, why do I need to delegate my power for government to solve this problem, to clean this street, to, to, to do all these things yeah. that we get a little bit lazy and we don't want to do ourselves. We're like, government should be doing that and government should fix that. I pay my taxes, yeah. damn it. Yeah. yeah. And I think that uh, entrepreneurship gives you back that power to see and create, to, to create the change you want to see in the world, but also gives you that responsibility. And that, for some reason, also starts trickling into your individual and personal choices. You're like, mm, I'm in charge of changing this thing uh, mm-hmm. that I don't like in the world, in my life, in my little environments with my friends and whatnot. So I just think um, is is about... It's less about going in autopilot and hoping someone figures out your things for you. And I just find it very liberating, very uh, honest, very real. And it demands people to be present and to be awake and to be aware. Um, And I I know it's not the easier thing. It's better like someone is making decisions for you. But I think that if we do it uh, in a right way, you we can really um, have a different society. People that is more aware of their actions and how their actions impact other people or their inactions. I get the sense that you could be dedicating your time and your brilliance to a lot of different things. So why are you trying to move the needle on good governance? That's a great question. I, I think it's... Um, It's a thing that lives in me. It's a natural thing in me. Like I was born, um, as I mentioned, in the DR, and I never got comfortable with asymmetries, with inequalities, with injustice, 
but not like injustice when things just when people just don't have access to stuff and people cannot just have like a a a, a life worth of a human being like when you just feel like a basic human being it's more like we're not providing opportunities and we're not providing the basics for someone to feel like they're a human being but we have the resources that's the thing that really gets to my nerves like i worked in the dominican republic in uh, several public agencies and we had the resources and we had the people and we had every opportunity to do things right and you could see how other interests that were not the public's best interest would come in the way. And the people making those decisions were good people too. But they just had a lot to deal with. And I saw that. So, you know, I cannot blame them. I cannot blame me for doing the best I could in the context I was given. But that was the system we were... That was the system we decided to play the game. Mm-hmm. It's like when you tell me, you know here in these elections. Well, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. She knew the system she was playing with. And the and the system she was playing with is not a popular vote system. We have the Electoral College. And, right. she, and she knew that. Right. So it's not, right? So it's like, when you are a smart person and you go into a system that ha- was designed before you and that you know might not work, not just for you, but for what you want to do, your commitment your thing is to create a new system, not to go into those systems. So I'm thinking, can I create better systems for good people that want to run government to go do their best, put, you know, how I've seen government officers do, put 20 hours a day into trying to figure out big things, big science, working from uh, people working at the Department of Energy or little things like just running, you know, your taxes or renovating your... Uh, DMV or your ID like can we help those people do more because they do want to do what's some of them want to do the right thing and some of them want to do what's right and I just I just want to close that gap I want to close that gap between what we know is very simple and needs to be done and what these these people that is actually the government the people behind the government really can do considering the constraints and the systems they have I cannot stand the disconnect between what I know we can do and what we're actually doing. And I was raised in a, what we consider a poor third world, third world country. And, and we had the resources. So I'm just like, I like big ideas and I like big projects. And if there's one thing I want to do in my life, um, in the traditional style is I want to know that I solved one thing in the world and that's the future of governance and what's the next political system after democracy. That's the thing I really want to nail and I want to get done. And considering how fast things are happening in our time, I'm not hoping that I create something, I die and then 40 years later, it's like, oh my gosh, maybe she was right. I don't care. This is not a legacy project. This is not a legacy project. This is something I want to see implemented in life. And I don't care about being right or wrong. I care about being wrong as many times I need to be wrong until I'm right. Until, Until we create something that makes sense for these societies, for societies that are, that care, for societies that are willing to do their part for people that is 
um, um, you know, a concern with the environment, with their citizens, with mental health, with all of these universe of things that mm. now we care. Um, and they know there's a path to do something about the things they care and for the things they are not super enthusiastic about solving, they know that there's other people working on that and we can work collectively towards that better um, humanity for all. I would be very, very frustrated if 80 years from now, when we are living in Mars or, or in some other planet, we are implementing the same systems we have here today. I don't even want to talk about going to any other planet when we haven't sorted I'm with you. recycling, yeah. you know, basics, right? justice. So yeah. who are the ones who are going to go and implement those systems out there? It's us. And we're going to take all our legacy. And I just want to rethink and reimagine and build that, build a new thing. And then, okay, when we have new things that work better for all of us, then we can go out and conquer, you know, this space race. Planet, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So that's that's a big vision. Yeah. I imagine you've got a team around you that's helping move this forward. So I'd like to hear a little bit about your team, how how you lead them, how you manage this audacious workload. Yes. Yeah, so uh, we've been running for a year. I announced Social Glass for the first time in Sao Paulo. Um, last August um, and Wired in Brazil picked, picked, picked the idea. They were like, oh, this girl that pioneered drone delivery, she's now going after governments. Whoa, wh what Whoa. is this about? And I, I liked it. I In the beginning, I was just, um, after I left my first company, I wanted to take like a year off, you know, like travel, relax yeah. and let that idea emerge. And then three months in, I was like, okay, I know exactly what I need to, what I want to do next. Um, so over time, I've been letting the team, I would say, grow organically. So people that are uh, interested in the vision uh, have joined. Um, and it's interesting because we have a remote first team. So we're not remote friendly. We're remote first. So we... Um, all the team, um, we're not expecting you to be co-located here in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. Everyone is all around the world. So we have people working uh, in China. We have people working in Boston, New York. We have people here. Um, uh, and then we have also people in Brazil and the Dominican Republic, in Madrid. So we have a big team from every potential nationality. Well, we're lacking some nationalities here. <laughs> But um, we have a team of 16 as okay. of today, and we're, we're doing, you know, typical startup. We're doing everything from uh, the UX, the UI design, to um, working on this first MVP, backend, frontend. How, how do the first product from Social Glass looks like? We're going to test it internally to make sure that it's something that makes sense. Because the thing is that we are creating products for governments. But we are, but before that, we are creating products for the people that work at government. So it, it has a different feel to it. Um, people need to want to use this product because they know we're making their lives better. Like they're just like, oh yeah, I can sign a government contract with two clicks and mm -hmm. 
it's already in the cloud and yeah, I don't have to do manual work or as simple as when we were doing our customer validation, um, we were, we talked with a lot of people doing admin work, like making sure that everyone in government is traveling and has a place to stay. Like these are the little things that people don't pick up, for example, or completing proposals on behalf of government and whatnot. And when we were talking with them, we asked them, you know, what, we asked them key questions like what would change the way you work for government? How, how would you be more efficient? And they would say a lot of things. Um, but then you would ask them, okay, what's your favorite part of the day? And they're like, well, my favorite part of the day is when I have nothing else to resolve. Like in the sense, like someone's calling that something's burning Mm -hmm. and I can just put on my headset, my headphones, and jump to some good music and I can start writing cool proposals that I know will get approved. I'm like, oh, many people would say like, yeah, we really like writing proposals because we understand government and we understand what government needs. And I'm talking about people doing admin work. They were writing proposals and I'm like, oh, super nice. And what do you need to get into that zone? And how often do you get to do that? Oh, I don't have a lot of time to think really, but um, I do that probably once a week and you know, we just, I just opened my Spotify and I just listened to music and I'm like, yeah. And they were like, yeah. And then I muted when the ads come in and I'm like, oh, because you're using your own Spotify. They're like, oh yeah. So I was thinking, can you imagine probably the something as little as having a Spotify premium with no ads, this government officer would see their productivity increase because they love just getting in the zone, listening to the music they like with no interruption and writing good proposals for government. So probably I just need to put free music in my app. Like, I don't know. It makes me think about all these little hacks that you can do to really incentivize people to do their best work. So, um, we have a global team thinking about all these little things because another thing that I think, um, Silicon Valley doesn't do well is that we we here create global products, but our companies are not global and are not diverse enough. So how can you create global products that you say you want them to be in as many hands as possible? We have a world with 7 billion people and then you don't have that diversity and that global feeling right. in your company, nor in your middle manage- management, no, nor in your higher manager management, nor in your board or sitting investors. at the table yeah. nor investors. I, I mean, investors is different because not everybody has money to right? the way the world has evolved. Not everybody has money to uh, invest. Let's say like some, um, groups have not created wealth so they can invest that wealth and be- become investors. But come on, like you can get money from whatever you decide to get money and you can still hire and optimize to hire mm-hmm. whoever you want. So I, I'm taking a different approach to that. And I am a remote first, uh, global first, diversity first company. So we have people seeing all these little things with the hopes that, um, we can create an amazing experience with the first product that we put out there in social glass. And also considering that the first product is the company that we built how we think together, how we work together, how we collaborate together. That's the first product. 
And so how do you, as the leader, the top of this hierarchy, go about um, setting the tone and creating the conditions by which the, this first product, the company, the culture, is developed intentionally and in alignment with what you're hoping to implement in your products? Yeah, this is a great question. We're figuring, I'm figuring it out personally, and I'm also uh, figuring it out with my advisors, um, how we move this ship in the right way and in, in a different way. That is not the way I've seen or mm -hmm. I've done before. Um, the most important thing I've seen is that people need, we all need some limits so we can act. So we need to limit the amount of complexity we bring to the table so people can see things and go and do things. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, complexity is the enemy of execution. If you overload everyone with everything, they won't be able to move because they have too much information. So that's number one. Limit, like have a very clear goal that this group of people or this person needs to achieve and put a deadline to it. Even if the deadline is artificial, create a deadline. Deadlines make people move and make people organize their priorities better. So that's number one. But number two, you need to be open enough to let these people know that once they have achieved that, they can jump into something else that doesn't need to be that. I'm more interested in having people knowing that they can, for example, lead the marketing team and make sure that we have our first marketing campaign that is a communications campaign about why we care about these products that we're creating for government and how we went to build on this product and why not. And then to tell me, Paula, marketing campaign is done. The goal was to communicate this. This is done. It was done by the time, by the deadline we agreed. But now you know what? There's a trend on marketing that the marketing and the sales department are together. Actually, I want to open up our marketing slash sales department and I want to focus more on sales than on marketing. Can I do that? I'm like, go for it. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So people need to know that these five things need to get done. Once those five things get done, because that's what we need to have a company, to have money, to be able to pay all these people and to continue moving the ship forward, everything else you do outside of that and all that creativity that usually gets on top, bring it to the company. Do that here. Don't go somewhere else to create a sales department. Create it here. So I think that um, dual approach of open, close, open, mm -hmm. close. Reminding people, you know, as a CEO, my job is to make sure everyone remembers what's the main thing we're all going after. Whether you work in the intellectual property department, whether you work in the MVP department, I don't care. Everyone knows that on November 11th, we have an internal launch of our first product. That's what everybody needs to know. Even if the intellectual property person knows nothing about how we're developing that other than that that needs to get protected and that we're trying to yeah. find patents for that, they know that that November 11th deadline exists. So you have the whole company rallying against one big, big, big task. However, they know that once these things get achieved, they can also go and create other things that will amplify this main thing that we're doing and this is what everyone gets uh, that, that's what attracts everyone I think to this type of um, startups is it's not like we're gonna get it done no matter what it does matter 
it does matter how we're going to get it yeah. done. And it does matter what you bring to the table. And if you've gone to your, if you've, you're like in a plateau position where you think you've done what you know how to do and now you want to experiment something else, you can go and experiment something else and we will give you full creativity and full like space for you to go and create that. Why? Number one, we're a startup. So we can entertain fast pivot. We can entertain doing things in an experimental fashion. Mm -hmm. And because I think that's where innovation comes from. Innovation doesn't come up, come up from uh, reading uh, the link startup by Eric Ries and then implementing it to the dot. It's about reading and having all that knowledge from all those different methodologies and then implementing the ones that make sense for you and letting people to come up with new methodologies and to, to create the ones that work for this specific team tackling this specific set of problems. And how are you incentivizing creativity on your team? Something interesting that is happening is that I'm, I've tried to remove myself from every little decision and every big decision. And what is happening is that teams are collaborating with each other intuitively. Um, and they are, so just to put you an example, we have uh, an all hands meeting every week, one big meeting where everyone is optional, but they have to come and um, say three things, who they are, where, where they're based, who they are, where they're based, that's the basics. And then they need to uh, basically be able to uh, explain to the whole team what they achieved last week, what they are aiming to achieve this week, and if they have any roadblock. Uh, I learned that, uh, that methodology working with Hyperloop because they have an amazing global uh, contributor team all around the world. And it's amazing to see how 800 people get gets to mobilize and do things much faster and with such love and passion and drive that I've never seen in the private sector before. So I'm like very excited about implementing this uh, in my own company, Social Glass, this time. For those not familiar with Hyperloop, what Hyperloop has done is put out an audacious vision. In response, a lot of people around the globe said, I want to help out. And so Hyperloop has assembled a enormous team, I think Paula said 800, of largely volunteers who dedicate various amounts of time and energy to forwarding the Hyperloop vision. As contributors are kicking ass or doing really exemplary work, or their skill set is needed for a point in time, they're elevated to a more formalized role, sometimes even paying. This is a model that a lot of movements have used in the past, and I, for one, have been the beneficiary of when I went to work with the Pillar Project. It started as an all-volunteer operation, and those who were the star players and really dedicated to getting work done and accomplishing great feats were then hired on to staff. Now, there's a lot of volunteers that are currently working full-time jobs and do their work either on the Pillar Project or Hyperloop as their passion project and others who are using the volunteerism pathway to expedite or sidestep the traditional hiring process. After all, a resume talks about what you have done and these organizations to accomplish their audacious mission need to be more focused on 
what are you doing now and how are you working with our existing team but the cool thing about this is that people get to have a space to know the bigger picture so you might not grasp the bigger picture you might not know exactly what the uh, pilots and partnership teams uh, are doing but you know they exist and you hear what they're doing even though you don't go deep uh, mm-hmm. into into what you're aware of their goals you're aware of all that after. yeah all of that is is there and you can go and check all those um, details online but we have that big meeting a week, once a week and then every team has their own meeting once a week where they go into specifics of what they specifically need to achieve and the goal they need, the goals they need to achieve but what's been happening is that when between teams they need to cross information like oh the MVP team came with this information and we need to make sure marketing gets that information because that's how we're going to talk about the new product we're pushing out. Usually, you know, because I'm the one that has the big vision and that I'm seeing what every team is doing, I would be the one saying, oh, we produce this, so now we need to pass it on to marketing. But before things get finalized or they get approved or they get refined, things are flowing already into marketing. And that's beautiful because yeah. marketing then is saying that doesn't go that that we cannot address our product that way. So before we conclude the MVP process, before we conclude what yeah. this product should feel like, you're already getting input from the people that is communicating the vision that this doesn't right. communicate the vision. Right. And as opposed to wait until you have something fully baked by a team then you have all this cross-pollination all the time. So, the t- and you, you, in the beginning I was thinking, no, we cannot share things until things are not ready because we don't want a lot of feedback until we're ready to receive the feedback. <laughs> Ditch that. Like people is ready to receive feedback. They cannot consume all the feedback, right. but talking all the time between teams is, is amazing. And I love it because also is people, people are creating their own mini meetings without me having to enforce that they need to talk. That is even better. So imagine we are, um, how would you say this? We are uh, replacing the hallway conversations with WhatsApps and Slack conversations Mm -hmm. and they just call each other on Zoom and FaceTime and they're like, this doesn't make sense. Let's go back. Let's go back to the board. Let's go back to the whiteboard. So I think it's naturally happening, but it's just because uh, we have a big vision that we all know we need to rally. Uh, around and every team knows exactly what they need to do but they know they don't have the permission they have the responsibility to make sure this product is the best product that we can create and we cannot do that if we don't talk to everyone on the table Mm -hmm. and in this company everyone is on the table so I think I think that really promotes that and people feel uh, have a sense of belonging on, on what they're building and not just like Paola and our investors will make the call. This yeah. is not about that. Get everyone's buy-in. So in, in five years from now, do you hope that this model continues and you, your uh, social glasses organized like Hyperloop? Or do you see uh, a more entrenched hierarchy assuming as more people join? I am open to experiment with that i don't know Mm -hmm. so hyperloop has been around for five years hyperloop transportation technologies it's been an amazing company to um to follow and to 
be part of and the level of commitment of everyone that is a full-time part-time or contributor um it's just amazing and mm -hmm. this is very good quality people and they have organized themselves in a very interesting and innovative way so i i work with them very closely and i'm uh observing how that continues to evolve i don't mm -hmm. know at what point like too many people yeah it's a problem because right. you know um when you have 800 people working in a global company that is a startup you have 800 potential problems and liabilities like people wanting to do things their own way and whatnot so i don't know what i just hope is that through this um process i'm able to unveil natural politics natural politics is an idea that paula has spoken about a few times and i'd like to ground that because while it might sound lofty there are actually ample examples of natural politics all around us. Think about how, you know, cells are organized. And then think about the models of businesses such as, or organizations, not just businesses, such as Wikipedia, Lyft, Airbnb, even Bitcoin. All of these are decentralized systems where people who are interested and passionate about specific areas, be it the history of the East Indian Company, or are simply interested in making a few extra bucks with the car that's been parked in the driveway for the last month. These are democratized systems, you no know, decentralized systems where people who are interested in forwarding an action can do so at their own will. More and more we're seeing organizations of all types and stripes forwarding a more decentralized model. It's something that is spoken to quite elegantly and clearly in the short book, The Spider and the Starfish. At its heart, it's about incentivizing the self-organization of interested stakeholders how people self-organize how people know what we want to get done and they don't create processes and systems that once we create that we are stuck with that yeah i'm more interested in seeing you know how we say november 11th and we launch something on november 11th i'm more interested in seeing then how we learn that internally and then we can create a product that help government do that externally okay we said free good quality healthcare for everyone by december 31st 2018 let's all do it mm -hmm. so it's it's something i'm i'm i picked from hyperloop i'm experimenting it at social glass but i hope it can translate into a product that will go in the hands of government employees and government decision makers. So where are you focusing initially? Where's the first uh, software product gonna be implemented either geographically or within the bureaucratic systems? So our first product is an e-commerce marketplace for government micro purchases. So imagine um, simplifying government procurement processes or mm -hmm. government contracts. Uh, in the linear way of thinking, we would say take 100 pages and make it 10 pages, like simplify it or make it a smart contract with blockchain. And what we're saying is precisely take 100 pages of contract and transform that into a click. And 
all that decision-making that went behind to make that decision and to sign that contract, number one, is accessible, is centrally stored in the cloud, is accessible by the people that needs to have access. Um, if a warranty clause or some clause needs to kick in, it kicks in automatically based on what are the clauses of the contract and whatnot. So basically what we're doing is um, creating a smarter, a smarter, simpler way for governments to um, uh, understand what they need to purchase, whether that's a product or a service, mm -hmm. and to purchase it, to purchase it with uh, a very streamlined process where we are proposing government what are the best value options and they can make a series of decisions in a couple of minutes that before would take them months. Um, and we are tackling micro purchases first because so imagine this big ecosystem of things that governments can buy from an airplane to weapons to paper and pens, paper and pens. And the status quo is is very, very focused on making sure that we have processes to buy the weapons and the uh, airplanes following a lot of processes to pro to prevent corruption and to prevent uh, nepotism and a bunch of other things. So I'm not going to touch that today because there are a lot of interests there. What we're going to go after is after the micro purchases that are those purchases in the low threshold category that, you know, if an intern, an analyst, a 40 year old, uh, 40 years working at uh, in an, in the administration person or a minister can do all of these people can do a micro purchase depending on the country and depending on the agency these micro purchases can go as low as five hundred dollars to as high as under twenty five thousand mm -hmm. dollars and when you aggregate these micro purchases that are being done either directly or with a government credit card or someone goes and purchase something with their money and then getting re reimbursed all of these different methods and all of these different people is purchasing things on behalf of government. And just in the US, this is a $20 billion market. Billion. Billion with a B. So the most interesting thing is that when we were trying to understand what the global market for micro purchases was, that number doesn't exist. Nobody has put it together. Hmm. You know why? Because people don't think there is a global market for micro purchases because every micro purchase ecosystem is local by definition is national right right so right. if you sell if you are a small flower shop in tennessee in nashville um you're not thinking that you can sell these flowers to the dominican republic right but if you're the only one who are, who are who's producing tulips just putting an example and you know in the dominican republic they need tulips because they have a big minister conference going on and tulips is the thing they will buy tulips and probably they will buy tulips from the local supplier but the local supplier doesn't have tulips so who is the best tulips su supplier oh is that an american company oh they cannot sell to the dominican government why so you know it's an interesting mm. thing to put global and local government suppliers into one platform that is micro that's the name of the product so they can create online stores that are available 24 seven. So they don't have to go ministry by ministry, agency by agency or country by country selling their services. They just create that store once mm. and they can 
update their offering with a couple of clicks. So these little mom and pop shops that you that would never even sell to government because they cannot entertain having a sales department or they don't even know how to have an online store. Suddenly, or respond to an RFP. Or respond to yeah. an RFP. Suddenly they can enter the market, even if they're not in the best position to compete. At least they say we're giving them an online store. They can enter the market. Yeah. Um, and then what you have in the side of government is these government officers trying to purchase, not, not government purchasing officers, like any officer trying to get things done. Like you need to run a meeting, you need to buy something that is needed at your agency. Um, we've worked with a couple of um, departments here in California exploring what they're doing on the day to day. And you, you know, sometimes a uh, um, pipe breaks and they don't have time to go and put an RFP. They need to get someone right. to come and fix this pipe. And all of this is happening while we want government to work and government is just like making a call and calling their usual supplier. And if that supplier cannot go and fix the pipe, they need to do something else. So that would be considered a micro purchase depending on the dollar amount. But again, if there are 1400, uh, you know, plumbers around the area where you had the leak, why you need to call someone that lives in the next County, like just have one of those plumbers, because at the end of the day is that other person could be your friend or not. You just want to get it sorted. Right. So, uh, imagine that from the government point of view, what we're doing is saying, uh, we're giving you the opportunity of having a marketplace platform, just like Amazon with the difference that number one, this purchase is completely secure and we're going to make sure it's compliant. So everyone that is a supplier that is on this platform, we have vetted them already. We know they qualify to sell government's products or services yeah. and we are optimizing local. So when you go into Amazon, you're like, you're more likely to see a Chinese supplier and at the top of the list than the supplier that is in the corner that has the same product, probably a dollar more expensive. Right. But that dollar more expensive, considering that is a local supplier that understand the local context that would probably greet you in person and that is going to deliver this within the next 15 minutes, that dollar is worth nothing right. compared to, and it's local, it's a local purchase. So you're supporting your local small and medium businesses uh, ecosystem. So when you put all of those things together, what we're doing basically is creating this marketplace where we're optimizing local first without limiting global suppliers to also be in the platform and local businesses can win at what they do best, but they also step up because they see that they are competing with global suppliers yeah. in the same platform. So you put all of that together with a couple of clicks. You don't have to think about is, is this uh, supplier in a blacklist? Is this supplier, has this supplier been in the bar by the World Bank? Have they done right. something wrong? No, all that information is there. And if the supplier appears on your search, it's They're good qualified. for you to purchase. And you do a couple of clicks and you have reduced a process of a couple of weeks into a couple of clicks. So that's our first product, Micro. Um, you can buy, sell or rent product services or spaces that are under the micro purchasing uh, threshold from companies or individual people that is a freelancer and that is certified by the system where all the products and the services are micro verified. So we have already made sure that they can be on the platform. So if it appears there, you can with a click, make sure that is a 
totally compliant purchase. Mm. So that's the first product. So what's been the reception of uh, government employees to your ideas, your approach? The, it's, it's interesting. Um, they are, I think they know they want these tools. It's like you have these amazing government people working with these clunky systems like okay their email system doesn't talk to their budgeting system does that doesn't talk to their purchasing system that doesn't talk to how they buy uh air transportation none of those systems talk mm -hmm. they have to do some things manually some things using g suite some things using microsoft some things using salesforce right. or something else and when I tell them that I'm creating an ecosystem where all these products live together and whatever they do in one product will talk to the other product, just like when you're doing like a G doc, you know that the G doc is going to appear in the G drive. And when you're sending an email, you will have the option to attach that from your G drive. Like, and it'll be the most up-to-date version. Up-to-date version. Yeah. You don't have to deal with <laughs> all these type of manual updates and whatnot. They get excited about it, but I think they don't, they don't fully envision it because it doesn't exist yet. Yeah. And then they're thinking, well, even if it exists, yeah, it's going to be a cool thing. It's going to be a good thing, but they don't think it's going to be a product that is going to be so intuitive to use that they won't need training. And that is the experience we want to give them is like, you go and work in government from nine to five, nine to six or eight to eight, depending on who you are and what you do. Um, and then you, you have all this complexity surrounding every little decision you're making and suddenly you get out of work, you go home and you have to run your house. And right. then you buy things on Amazon, you get things delivered by Google Shopping Express, you pay your bills that are automatically, you just check your app. So suddenly when I get you out of the government environment, you become a highly efficient, fully functional person. And then that same person, I ask them to go to work next day and they become slow and outdated and unable to make the better decisions the best decision in every single operation yeah. so what i'm trying to tell them is like you see how you run your house you see how you run your everyday like super fast super efficient you try to make the best decision if that was not the best decision you return it with a click right and the ups guy comes and picks it up Let's bring that to government to see how you're going to run your office. People's like, I want that. So they're very open. They want to see how that tastes and feels like because they don't, they don't think it's possible for government. They think government is meant to be bureaucratic and is yeah. meant to be slow and is meant to be complex. And I'm about to give them a taste of something different. Um, so I love that and how you've rooted it in experiences they already have. Yeah. This isn't some other world like no this is just outside of your i'm piggybacking context. on one day on what they love and what makes sense yeah. and what is simple for them and when people ask me like what business are you in are you in the government business are you in the gov tech business i'm like look i'm i'm in the business of simplifying every single government operation and making a cut out of that are you buying flowers i make a, i make a cut yeah are you organizing a ministries event I make a cut. Are you writing new legislation? Can we simplify how we write new legislation? I make a cut. Like, 
I'm simplifying every operation, yeah. whether it's writing stuff, buying stuff, organizing stuff, project management, managing stuff, sending an email. We want to simplify all of that and we want to make it so that people don't have to connect things. Things get connected automatically. Things are um, working in tandem, in parallel. And it's just the way we run our companies or and the rest of the world. Right. Like we, we have those tools in our daily lives and these people use those tools and have those experiences. So they know what a good experience is like. And it's just that they got used to shit experiences. Um, and I just think that if, if we give them that, it would be so obvious because that's, that's what happens with good ideas implemented, right? People's like, like of course, why, yeah. why? Of course, this was normal. Like, why didn't we have this before? So I'm really hoping that it's so normal. It was so obvious. Like, it's almost dumb. Like, mm -hmm. of course, this should have existed a while ago. Yeah. So, so zooming out of uh, what you're doing with Social Glass, what are some other good governance initiatives, projects that are giving you hope, that are cutting edge? Yeah, I think there's so much happening out there right now, and it's all very good. Um, there's the eAstonia um, initiative. These guys have managed to really even digitize the way someone is granted an identity. And I think um, they've done it using a government approach. So it's still a government-led initiative that is... I believe constrained by how government uh, understands things things can work so mm -hmm. it's not like for example um, let, let, let me see if I can convey this to you you see how it was not the taxi industry that disrupted themselves it was uber right and, and uber is a technology company it, they were the outsiders and they didn't invent anything new. They didn't invent apps. They didn't invent the smartphones. And they didn't invent taxis. They just put it all together in a, in a better way. Uber, Lyft, and all these other um, uh, riding companies. So what I'm thinking is, what enabled the Ubers to see something and change something that the current industry didn't see because the industry was thinking linearly and then the outsiders were thinking in a different way. So yeah. my challenge, having worked at government, is not think linearly because I've been there, done that. And then at the other end, my other challenge is not to be just such an outsider that then I create things that don't make sense. Like government might tell me, we don't want to make purchases in one second because and I'm like, yeah, because of why. So, you know, I need to understand how to merge both worlds. Yeah. But I think Estonia has managed to really be innovative inside, um, inside government. Uh, and I think there's a lot of room for improvement from outside government coming and saying, you've done great. And this is how we take it to the next right. level. Um, other initiatives... I think Estonia is the most prominent one. There's There are a lot of experiments with liquid democracy. Um, these uh, modes of choosing delegates um, that is not like a representative that is set on stone and that has to serve, uh, serve for... Yeah, it's, it's yeah. more liquid. That's, that's part of the concept of liquid democracy. Um, 
and there's a lot of cross uh, pollination that is happening between entrepreneurship and government like many people are working on very cool things around urban planning um, around financial services provided by government um, and how governments inside themselves they're creating digital services offices where citizens can basically not go to every agency's website and see what they need to do. For example, like go to the IRS and pay your taxes, go to um, this other website and do something. Yeah. But you can have, you as a citizen have a dashboard where you see all your services there huh. and you just, you just do use your dashboard. There's all you need to do. I, the Argentinian government is doing that. Um, and it's very cool because again, it's putting the user that is the, the citizen at the center and the services around him or her and not you around the services like right right so there's there's a lot that's happening that is great um and we just hope to be part of this ecosystem to help those government systems uh be more efficient today but that's not the end goal we know that these government agencies will morph dramatically into something else in the next 10 years i don't know if they will disappear i don't know if they will stick around if they will merge if they will be completely automated by ai yeah. i don't know any of that i don't have those answers but i can tell you the trends and the trends are that we will split more work between uh, humans and robots whether that's software or physical robots. I know we will augment some of these humans doing work at government. And I know that when it makes sense, we will replace some of the work they're doing and some of their decision making. If, if their decision making is suboptimal mm -hmm. to one that a machine can do. Um, many people is concerned about um, losing jobs uh, for people. I don't think governments should create jobs for people. That's not gov a government's job uh, government's job is to provide public health care uh, public services that are uh, of good quality 24 7 and that everyone has access to them and how we get to do that doesn't need to be a function of making sure that your people is employed yeah. you need to create those incentives in the private sector or somewhere else so let's see how that all plays out um, but I'm very realistic i'm not optimist about that i'm realistic there's a lot that is happening and i know that together we will start you know creating projects that will um merge or touch on the same problems in many different ways and hopefully the best ideas or implementations will be the ones that we can um uh, really implement and globalize that's the way the world works yeah no i i so love and appreciate your your approach to saying i don't know we're going to work on it it's an experiment not being attached to one final outcome but having this big audacious goal that you're working towards yeah i mean whoever whoever doesn't do this is losing like we know that we can do much better and being open to doing things in a different way 
starts with you having that flexibility and you saying, I don't know. Every time you say you do know, you are already like making a statement that you know how something works and then you're not going to go and be curious about the things you don't know. So we're open. Uh, We're taking a lean approach to how we do things. We go out, we experiment. If they don't work, we do it again because we're committed with transforming governments into um, high-performing entities and we are committed to creating the next system after democracy. So that is the commitment. It's not how we do it. The means is not the end. So if it's not micro, if it's not a government for government purchases uh, with a click, it's going to be something else. Uh, But it will happen and there's a deadline and we're working against those deadlines. I have no doubt. I, I really want to be uh, respectful of your time. I know I've taken more than I said I would. Where can people learn more about you and what you're up to? So they can go to www.social.glass. That's our main website. Uh, we're in every social media at The Social Glass. Uh, and they can also follow me at Paola Santana M. Uh, and they can learn more about what we're doing. Um, And yeah, we'd love to, you know, get people excited about politics and governance in a constructive, positive way where we talk about how we can do things different by building solutions, not by discussing arguments and points of view or uh, ideologies. So we're more interested in building things and whoever is interested in building things with us, we're open to entertain ideas and to collaborate. Any last words or call to action before we wrap it up? Done is better than perfect. So just start today. Start doing things today that um, push the world forward. I know so many amazing entrepreneurs and people with a lot of initiative that are waiting for the right moment or for the things to come together. And I don't know, from a sign from somewhere that perfect time doesn't exist um and you know we we're we're aiming to do artificial intelligence is one of our core technology capabilities um i don't know anyone has cracked or nailed that yet uh, on artificial intelligence for marketplaces or for even for government and we are unafraid to say we're experimenting with this so just experiment with things like the tools are there the knowledge is there the people that can support you is there everything's there the nose are there too it just depends on what you're going to focus your attention um but i think that done is better than perfect and i think that taking the risk and going after something that might work is better than just never trying and if there was a time to try things out to think different to aspire to do things different in the world it would be now in the 24-hour news cycle it's so easy to get caught up in the tragedies or the hopes of the day what's really exciting about what paula and her team at social glass are doing is really taking a step back And I'd argue a step back that probably should have been taken a long time ago. I mean, our democracy has been around since 1776, 
yet many of the core tenets of that constitution, that document, have not changed. And almost everything else in the world has. How we communicate, how we transport ourselves, how we engage in commerce. And that's just on the basic infrastructure front, not to mention the scope of the jurisdictions, the physical changes that take place to not only our geography, but our culture and how we're living. So I'm not exactly sure where Paola and her team are going to end up, but one thing is for sure. The liberal democracy model needs an upgrade, needs to be updated. The operating system needs an enhancement to bring it in line with the culture and the realities of the 21st century. In this conversation with Paula, I found myself feeling an extreme sensation of hope that there are smart people who are dedicated to creating the system that comes after the one we are in. And this is such important work. I cannot stress enough the importance of this. You know, in this day and age, a lot of people say we need the the system to break down before it can be rebuilt. But that's going to be ugly. There's going to be some dark days if that's the model we choose. What Paula and her team are doing is helping build the bridge so that the transition to the more equitable, more transparent, more hopeful system that comes after what we're kind of in the death throes of right now, that that transition happens smoothly. To learn more about Paula and what her team are up to, please visit social.glass or connect with her on Twitter at P-A-O-L-A Santana M. That's at Paula Santana M. If you haven't already done so, please go to the iTunes podcast store and rate and review this podcast. Your comments, your questions, your feedback is much appreciated. Once again, I'd like to thank my buddy Jay Lately for providing the tunes and the first sponsorship of the Onward podcast. If you want to sponsor a future episode, get at me. D-W-E-I-N, Z like zebra, V like Victor, E-G at gmail.com or dweinsvig.com. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Onward. Until next time, Onward and Upward.